I originally put this uh, as Jesus, uh, Jesus' kindness, but then I decided to go a different direction because one of the things I had real trouble with uh, for this particular topic was coming up with a word or even a phrase that really illustrates what I'm trying to get at in uh, talking about Jesus' kindness. Kindness doesn't work. Gentleness doesn't work. Because these have all become terms in our vernacular that mean weakness and or uh, being too nice, or being a pushover. And so it really kind of doesn't fit what I wanted to talk about. And so I'm going to use something that's a little bit confusing, um, but I'm going to try my best to expand on it. And I'm stealing it straight up from uh, Rick Watts in the Reframe video that he does. Uh, Reframe is kind of a... So it's like a 10-week you know, video lesson for uh, how to kind of think about your life, particularly ministry in the workplace. And for those of you who haven't been through it, we probably need to offer it again sometime. We probably need to pass around a sign-up. I think we talked about this at some point for people who want to kind of go through a reframe class. We might do that as a small group next semester or something. It might be kind of cool. But anyway, he, in uh, one of his talks, in fact, it's the one right in the middle, Jesus is King. And you can access this off of Regent's website. Uh, or just the Reframe website itself, because this is the only free version I think you can get, is the middle one, Jesus is King, and it's, it's by Rick Watts, and I've encouraged you to listen to it. It's about 20, or watch it, it's about 25 minutes long, and it is really, really good. Um, he kind of approaches Jesus in a way that's very different than maybe some of us uh, are used to, or have heard, or whatever else. And he talks about Jesus being a people keeper, all right? Not, not in the way like he like, collects people. That's strange, okay? But he's taking this idea that Sabbath wasn't meant for people. People weren't supposed to keep Sabbath. Sabbath was actually for people keeping. It was made for man, okay? Not man for Sabbath. It's going to take a little unpacking, that's fine. But he's talking about how you really look at Jesus and what was so powerful about his example of morality, of right and wrong was that he saw issues of people's dignity and healing and doing what was best for people and serving people as a top priority in regard to morality. Whereas you contrast that with the Pharisees and even a lot of the just regular Jews of the day who saw morality as keeping a set of specified rules, even if that meant prioritizing those rules over human lives. Okay? And Jesus came and he completely turned that system upside down. And, and that's why Rick Watts is calling him a people keeper. That, that Jesus' idea of morality had very little to do with keeping rules. and had everything to do with keeping people, tending to people, caring for people. Okay, Even if that meant that it went against the rules that people had set around them. Eating bread on the Sabbath, you know, coming through the fields and picking grain, healing people, the various things that he would do in the name of tending to and caring for people. He was a people keeper. And so that's going to be the title of this one, uh, Jesus the People Keeper. So I've given you a quote each week that I feel like illustrates... Um, the point that I'm trying to make from Jesus' life, and, and this quote uh, is one that I think we all know, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. 
And there's two really important aspects of what Jesus is saying here that inform this conversation about morality and about what truly is right and wrong. Okay? And the first is Jesus is chiding or uh, pointing out how the Pharisees have pretty much, according to their rule-keeping, decided that they're, they're healthy. They're healthy, strong people. Okay? And that these people who are looked down upon, neglected, whatever else, are sick. And Jesus goes with this and lets them sort of think this, right? I mean, you can't possibly interpret this passage. He's saying, well, yeah, you Pharisees, you're good to go. You're healthy. You don't need me. I'm just going to move on to the people who really do because you guys are already good to go. And so he's contrasting the people who the world sees as sick, who've really been neglected, as the very people who are open to him being in their lives. And those who think they've already pretty much gotten it figured out and live according to some rule book of goodness uh, that just pretty much don't need Jesus. So it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. You have in this, um, you know, quote, kind of two real significant things. One is that Jesus recognizes that it's not our own ability to follow law or standards that allows us to be moral or good. In fact... His morality stems not from his obedience to the law, but from the way that he treats people. That he is that doctor coming to heal people. Okay? I don't, I don't even know if I could. I don't even remember it. So long ago. Uh, no. That, that, that Jesus, you know, when he um, is kind of defining morality for his, his day and age... He's taking their emphasis and understanding away from these set rules, right? And, and, and placing it on morality is about taking care of people. Morality first and foremost is about being a doctor to the sick. And if some rules get broken in, in the way, uh, that's going to happen and that's okay. And so he redefines morality uh, for his generation. But even more importantly than that, he basically says, in essence, and I think this is the really radical idea, that it has very little to do with our ability or inability to follow rules or set guidelines of goodness in terms of morality, okay? And it has almost everything to do whether or not we simply will accept Jesus healing and transforming us. I'm going to get into this in just a little bit. Because, uh, yeah, I might just be like an idea at this point. So it's, it's the, not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. The third approach in the typologies, which I think a lot of you are probably more comfortable with, particularly if you came from a Reformed background, if you don't know what that is... I don't know, probably about half of you come from a reform background if you grew up in church, okay? I'm just going to go with that. Um, and when I asked the interns, you know, uh, for focus, you know, which approach they like the best, transforming is usually one of the, uh, the approaches they appreciate. That and paradox one, which we'll talk about in the last week. So, the idea of Christ transforming culture, uh, according to Niebuhr, 
is the idea that, that, that Jesus will work through individual people in culture to transform the way that the major institutions work. Okay? Now, it's a slightly different than Christ of culture because rather than Jesus working directly through culture, which means he can work through Christians and non-Christians, the whole idea of Christ transforming uh, culture is that Christians themselves will be at the forefront of things like medicine and science and politics and will themselves be God's agents for transforming the earth. All right? might seem like a subtle difference, but it's actually kind of a big difference. Because I think the, the consequences of this type of thinking uh, mean a lot of things. One is that we're supposed to be really uh, you know, concerned about the city we live in. We need to be involved in politics actively. We uh, you know, need to be at the forefront and positions of, of power and influence so that we can have a big impact on what happens in our world. And, and some too... Um, some of this approach would focus on growth or progress as a society being as a result of Christianity as an institution itself. So they see sort of the earth as getting better, or at least some society is getting better, and then want to point to Christianity or point to individual uh, Christians as being responsible for these things that are happening. So this sort of emphasis on things are getting better, should be getting better, uh, even the whole social justice uh, becoming a really important issue is really a Christ-transforming, you know, culture kind of ideology. All right? Does that kind of make sense? Maybe? Possibly? Yeah? That, that yeah, you know, Jesus is going to work through those of us who have influence and have power. We ought to, uh, uh, you know, be in those positions so that, uh, that he can, uh, you know, kind of renew the earth. Now, this seems to go really well with the idea of Jesus being a doctor, right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, he's, he's a doctor. He's going to heal people. He's going to go from place to place. Uh, and do these things. But I want to make three real quick points and uh, just to kind of uh, help us see, I think, the, uh, the value of this perspective and maybe some of the downfalls to it. Uh, the first one is that service is at the core of, of any kind of outreach. Okay, Serving others is at the core of any kind of outreach. And actually, I'm going to say not only serving others, but being served by others. Uh, somewhere along the lines... I think we got the idea that in order to, to reach out to people, we've got to serve them directly. Somehow, it, and some of it probably control, position of power, pride, whatever it is. But being served by people is just as good of a way to reach out to people yeah. as serving yourself. Being served by other people. And then being able to articulate how happy, how, you know, how much you appreciate it, how you know, influential, how significant is what they're actually doing for you. That's, that's provided, at least in my mind, just as many opportunities uh, for service, I mean, for, for actually talking to people about faith, as, uh, you know, uh, as actually serving people. In our car ministry, this happens a lot, as people want to give their cars to people or whatever else. Serving you know, and, and it's a great opportunity. You know, I had a guy just this weekend. Uh, you know, hey, I, I have this car. I'm interested in giving it to you guys. It led to uh, to kind of a pretty cool conversation about faith. You guys are all snickering in the background. You guys, someone fart back there, or you guys okay? Or is there something I should do? Do I have like a booger? You can't hear me. No, we can. Oh. I need you to talk louder. Really? 
You guys really can't hear me in the back? I can hear you. He's just joking. Oh. I'm talking too loud? <laughs> Vague criticism. I guess I give that to people all the time, so, yeah. <laughs> Getting it back. Um, great. So, I just want to make sure, you know, nothing was distracting you guys. I didn't have, like, a big booger or one of my eyes that wasn't falling out or something like that. Brad, yeah. Sure. So, Since we're completely off tangent now, yeah, yes. Um, so, you're saying, like, when, like, um, serving is at the core of outreach, but also being served is at the core of outreach. So, are you saying... I'm just saying service in general. Okay. Being served and serving. And, and the reason is because if we're meant to be people keepers, both keeping people and people keeping us are awesome opportunities to remind each other about who God is. Yeah. So the being and to be... Oh, go ahead. I was like, my main question was like, being served like by the people around us or specifically to the people we're outreaching to? That's kind of like what I'm confused about. All, every, every opportunity. I think we... This is probably something I should talk about and should have at the beginning. Sometimes we're a little bit too... Black and white with uh, with the idea of outreach, meaning that somehow you know uh, we don't have outreach or evangelism in the scripture, right? It's just making mature disciples, teach them to obey, and so a better way of looking at that uh, is not in and out this or that, but rather along a spectrum. It's you know remember the Western Washington folks always call people pre-Christians. I thought that was a little too weird, but the idea behind it makes sense. Uh, and that is that, you know, you've got people who just aren't really exposed to Christianity at all, right? Uh, you've got people who grew up in, in, you know, that culture, but, you know, consider themselves Christian but aren't directly around us. Heck, we got people in our church right now who consider themselves Christians, but, you know, I mean, they're going to maybe in a year consider themselves not to have been a Christian a year ago. <laughs> so it's not so easy to do the in and out this or that. You know, just because people are in this building or in this room doesn't mean that they... Uh, have really committed their lives to God. That's a decision they're going to have to make on their own. So I think maybe uh, it applies to everybody. Does that make sense? Is that possible? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Talk after. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's Ben, and then that's you, and then who knows who else will be in line after. Uh, so service is essential to outreach uh, simply because, guys, if you think about us in our innate nature as being people keepers and, and taking care of people, that when we take care of people, there's, there's a wall that breaks down, obstacles that break down before us. That's one of the main reasons why so much of evangelism can be offensive, because we're often not taking care of people's needs, at least not immediately. In fact, we're kind of like going against them <laughs> uh, many times. We're disrespecting uh, people's needs. Of course, in our mind, we're thinking, well, we're giving them the bigger need, which is Jesus, even though, you know, we're not paying any attention to the needs that they had before them. I'm assuming that somehow we actually are getting that message in. Um, but, uh, I, I, and, and I think that's why receiving service from others is a very important part of this as well, because when you can point out that someone has really uh, tended to you or cared for you, that's just as great of an opportunity. In fact, it's probably easier in some ways to point out that that reminds me a lot of what Jesus would do than it is like serving someone and being like, what I just did reminds me a lot of what Jesus would do. You know? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah? No? But a lot of us don't think uh, about that. Uh, particularly in a day and age where we're like served by a lot of people around us. Just like all the time. Jimmy John's has this weird 
ten rule list of who never to marry, I think. I don't remember actually what it is. Has anyone ever worked there before? What? Yeah, the sandwich company. What else would I be referring to? Like, my friend, Jimmy John? I mean, <laughs> any of you know a Jimmy John? Come on. <laughs> sandwich company. What? You act as if that's like you can't find wisdom at a sandwich company. I mean, <laughs> I don't like their food, but I like that little list. And one of them is never marry someone who's mean to waiters. I was like, yeah, that's pretty good advice. They got like 10 things on there. Some of you need to go, you know, single people need to go read that list of 10 things. All right? Ten things that you need to do. I think it, maybe it's just ten pieces of wisdom in general. Maybe it's not like ten pieces of wisdom for like whatever. It's a good list. That's all I'm gonna say. But one of them is don't don't you know marry someone who's mean to waiters. Um, it's so funny about that. It's so random. No, it's not. Okay. Um, I forgot to bring my book with me, which is really sad because... Well, actually, no, I think it's somewhere in the kitchen, but that's like kind of far, and might not want to walk all the way there. Uh, but in the Celebration of Discipline book... Look at Ben trying to redeem himself, you know? <laughs> Get my book, you know? Make me forget. He's laughing at me back there. All right, I guess I should read it. Um, he, t- he talks in probably one of the best sections of this entire book. Thanks, sir. Always the consummate servant. Uh, you really are. That sounded sarcastic, but it was not at all. Ben is always the first one here, besides me, ready to work, ready to help set up. Um, yeah, ben. Who else said they were here today? Tyrus? Oh, Tyrus. <laughs> half the time you were here, you're sleeping over there on that those chairs. And the other half, you're missing flies, man. No, just kidding. Tyrus had a very important job this morning. He's the reason why only one or two flies will settle on your your hair, uh, and not more than that, because he was the fly killer. Uh, we have a lot of roles in the morning, if you want to serve, okay? A lot of really random roles like that, like fly killer, just come, we have a party here, it's great, we love it. Come as early as you want, you know, we're here uh, doing things. This book has this really, really cool section on self-righteous service versus, uh, you know, regular service and uh, or godly service, and I really like it a lot, it's really challenging to me as someone who I think... Uh, you know, likes to serve maybe for show sometimes. But um, so check this out. I'm just going to read this really quickly to you. It's not long. But in service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banish, banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, and the trivial. He's talking about service as opposed to surrender, which I want to talk about in a moment. But surrender, you know, it's kind of a scene, it's a big deal, we feel really good about ourselves. But I like how he says service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. I love the way that's phrased because it's so true. It's a bunch of little deaths. Kind of remind you of another line from Jesus, deny ourselves daily. Maybe he wasn't meaning that in some cosmological big picture deal, but exactly what he's talking about here. You really want to learn how to do what's best for people? Tiny little deaths every day. One after another. Service. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. He goes on and identifies what he calls self-righteous service. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. This is, I think, probably my biggest criticism about a lot of social justice stuff. We talked about this with race and ethnicity. I think this is probably one of the biggest criticisms of Christ-transforming culture as well, is that it tends toward finding large, impressive acts of service as being more valuable than the trivial, 
mundane, daily acts of death. And yet you look at Jesus, and it's really hard, really hard, to model that kind of thinking after him. Who treated every insignificant person he came uh, alongside as a significant person worthy of conversation, worthy of uh, an opportunity to hear about God. Who chose not to be involved in the large movements of his time, even though there was one really large movement happening and with the zealots. So that should make us think. Self-righteous service requires external rewards. We want to know that people see and appreciate the effort. One of the biggest ways that service becomes for God and for God alone is when it's hidden. And practicing hidden service is super hard. It really is. I remember God two years ago, four or five years ago, who knows, who cares. Um, within a few weeks of each other told me to give pretty significant sizes of money to different people. And said, don't tell anybody about it. That lasted about a year. And then I just had to get it out. But it's like a year later. It doesn't even matter anymore. And still, I have to say it after a year. It's just too big of a deal for me not to be able to say it to a few people. It grows inside you. You're starting to think, man, I don't think I'm getting anything for this. It's probably time I tell that story and use it in a sermon illustration like I've done now, like the fourth or fifth time. So it, it requires external rewards. Self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. We'll talk about this in a moment when we talk about surrendering to God, but you want results. Picks and choose whom to serve. I know some of you guys uh, in the um, Tabby's class this week probably talked through some of this material, but uh, even just the idea of how do we know when we're being taken advantage of, that's the wrong question. Uh, the better question is, are we doing what's best for somebody? It reorients the question towards them and not to us. A lot of us think, oh, well, you know, are we being taken advantage of? That's a really good question we ought to ask. No, it's not a good question. Because Jesus was taken advantage of plenty. But in the service of doing what's best for other people. Because a lot of taking advantage of is not in, what, in the best interest of that person doing the taking advantage of. But it starts with what's best for them. Not with whether I'm going to be taken advantage of. Because certainly that doesn't really fit into uh, Jesus is what he says in the uh, right after the Beatitudes, giving people your cloak and you know all that good stuff. Self-righteous service is affected by moods and whims. Am I feeling like serving today? Has something really good happened to me and I need to pay it forward? Self-righteous service is insensitive. It insists on meeting the need even when to do so would be destructive. <laughs> This is like the story of American economic help in the last hundred years. We just sort of go into an area and are like, here's a lot of money, here's what you should do with it. <laughs> uh, rather than being sensitive to how that money would be best used according to what the culture says and not what our agenda is. And this is still an issue even with charitable giving in, uh, in the U.S. when it comes from government funding. And then self-righteous service fractures community. Uh, you know, that... I don't know about that one. It's really hard to explain, so I'm not going to worry about that. But for those of you who are like obsessed with lists, now you can write that one. And you have the full list. Good for you. The full list of self-righteous service. All right, point number two. 
So services, if services can, uh, can uh, core to outreach or central to outreach, surrender is core uh, and central to service. If service allows us to really get into people's lives and allow them into our lives, the thing that allows us to really serve in ways that aren't self-righteous is a surrender to God. In that point he makes about self-righteous service, I think one of the things that hits me most is the idea of needing sort of external reward or uh, needing some kind of proof that this is really valuable and working. This is really the same motivation in my mind that has led us to people counting and not people keeping in our evangelism styles. And this has just been a huge deal. Churches do this unabashedly. How many people did we save last year? How many souls were reached? And, and to some degree, there's probably nothing inherently wrong with recounting what we've done. Uh, you know, in God's favor, you know, with God. There's probably nothing wrong with that. But when service becomes motivated by the count and the quantity we get ourselves into a lot of trouble in terms of really being surrendered to God. Because it can become very easy for us to serve for our own self-righteous agenda. And, and there are all kinds of things that we do. When we really get down to it, we look at some of the things that we've done to serve people in the last week, two weeks, three weeks, or a month, you're going to find that if you were to try to categorize that, a lot of that comes out of self-righteous motivations. Guys, as Christians, we're not you know, uh, immune to that kind of stuff. The practice of true service to other people comes from God working, you know, in our hearts and in our minds. But what's at the core of that true service is a surrender to God and letting God decide what the results are going to be. But when we come out with a real clear picture of what our results were, we're going to pretty much always choose that option over letting God figure out his results in the long term. And if our outreach is motivated by results, we're going to do a lot more harm than good. I think. Because, you know, like with most of you in your own lives, you weren't converted in a single conversation or event or something like that. It took a relationship. Well, you're no different than the other people who live around us. Who have to be taken care of for a while before they really see Jesus as a people keeper through his people. And so we've got to be really, really, really careful, I think, uh, to avoid that tendency uh, to count people. Some of that might reflect itself in, I invited someone to church, and I kind of passed them off to someone, you know, but I got them here, yay. And so, to some degree, some of this comes down to um, learning how to, what we talked about two or three weeks ago, hit base hits with people. When you think about outreach as fundamentally about serving people, then all of those mundane, trivial tasks that you do for others, whether you get an opportunity or not to mention something about faith, is itself an act of service to God and in, in is outreach. It's people-keeping. It's what it is. Now, I'm not trying to set the bar low here to say, well, I smiled at 30 people today, and so I met my outreach quota. No, certainly if God opens up a door through us diligently being people keepers, taking care of people, to have a conversation about faith, 
um, to maybe you know, intentionally mention something to someone like what we've kind of talked about, that's great. That's incredibly important. And we ought to live lifestyles like that. But we've got to be very, very careful against this tendency to want external results. Okay? We plant, we water, God does the growing. And uh, too many Christians have become Christians uh, only to find out that uh, no one's ready to walk alongside them. No one's really uh, taught them how to grow because they've really converted them to God they, or Christianity. They've converted them to a set of ideas. So that's, that's challenging. We've got we to be really careful about that. Um, so surrender. Surrender meaning that we're going to do what we can do in the moment and give it our best and then let God decide what the results are going to be without pressuring uh, to try to get results that make us feel like what we're doing is important work. It's about being in it with the long haul, uh, in it for the long haul with people. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that giving someone a gospel presentation and explaining to them the gospel in a short and concise way is not helpful. I can be very helpful to people who are ready to hear that. But it takes quite a bit of, of at least conversation initially to know whether someone's ready to hear that. Otherwise, we simply spin our wheels and feel good that we shared with four people today or prayed with nine people today, and then we move on. But the problem is, in that nine people or four people we prayed with or gave a gospel presentation, how much time could we have spent with just one person really getting to know them better and moving forward with that? And I think both are great and important if we can. But let's be really honest. In our culture, quick conversations come across as far more offensive than anything else when we dive into things that are really, really uh, you know, deep with people. And, and you guys might have some different opinions on this. And that's fine. I'm okay listening. I, I, you know, a lot of this is going based on experience and seeing what people have done and in my own life. And if you've got thoughts, you've got some things that you really want to talk about, uh, you know, that's great. Let's do it. Some of you who've done campus conversations, this is a really important uh, tool for learning how to just talk to people about spiritual things. Some of us are just, we just don't ever mention anything. We don't ever talk about anything spiritual with anybody. That's not good. <laughs> That's, how do you do that? Without, you know, uh, denying the fact that you're a Christian in the first place. That, that these things that are spiritual in nature have impacted you deeply. You've got to be able to learn how to talk about that with both people who are in your vicinity and or outside of it. Because if you can't talk about it, if it's an off-limits conversation with people who aren't in your church or in your, uh, you're living a different life in two different settings. Learning how to, what, what's appropriate and how to talk about that uh, is really kind of the goal of, of what we're trying to do here. But just not talking about it at all isn't going to work. Okay? In the same way that, you know, prepackaged answers and stuff, that, that's usually not going to work with folks. So surrender is, uh, you know, at, at the core of this, uh, you know, service. I'm not going to talk much about politics, but I will say that each one of these approaches and typologies has its own issues when it comes to politics. Obviously, the against folks, no involvement, right? <clears throat> or if they are going to be involved in it, it's fundamental opposition to almost every value that our culture, uh, you know, has. The of folks, which I feel like some of your politics that I know of you in this room tend to look more like this, as if God is working through directly through our political system uh, to accomplish certain things that he wants to accomplish, and I'm just going to align with a certain political system, and then God's will will be done. Whew, that's tricky. 
Transforming culture tends to be pretty conservative and you need to be really active in politics, voting, being involved, doing the things that you need to do, maybe even running for office uh, in order to transform uh, the things around you and instituting a a particularly Christian agenda into that. And we'll see at the very end, paradox one is a little bit trickier because it's kind of like, I don't know, do what you want to do. So that that one we're going to have to unpack a little bit more. Final point here, okay, where we uh, end up. And this is the most important. So I'm trying to build a kind of a concentric circles, you know, kind of like our seeing uh, Jesus through seeing uh, through the Bible and uh, focus on Jesus study. These these concentric circles. So we have service on the outside, surrender, you know, further in, and and at the center of all this is Jesus's character. Because if you don't believe that Jesus came to serve, to seek and serve the lost, and then he was surrendered to God. And you're not trying to imitate that in your own life. Well, well, you got to back up. You got to go back to Jesus' character and look at who he was and what he did. A big part of what Jesus was able to do with people had very little to do with what he said. A lot of the Jewish folks were amazed at his authority, but that doesn't even mean that his authority was always something that they heard in his teaching as much as something that he lived in his life and the way he really treated people. In fact, I'll make a, a statement about that in just a moment. But So, Jesus' character is, is at the core of what surrender really is. So, in order to, to serve people, you've got to surrender to letting God kind of decide the results of, of that, that service. And not be in it for yourself. Because otherwise it becomes like one other thing we've added to our things to do to make ourselves feel good, look good, be good, whatever. And that will free you up a lot in your ability to talk to people and minister to people as you let God kind of be in control of the results. And at the core of of being able to surrender that is to just look at Jesus' character himself. We have constantly in our Western Protestant history take an issue with Jesus' lack of strategy and methodology for reaching out to people. We really like Paul a lot more. And we like him because he has a lot of words to say. And a lot of ideas to expand on. But the fact of the matter is simply that not only does Paul reflect in statements like I came to you knowing nothing but Jesus' resurrection in life. Which very much imitate the simplicity of his faith. But, Jesus himself just wasn't very complex in uh, the way that he dealt with a lot of, of the people of his day. He just treated them right. And then when he had opportunity, he spoke into their lives and he spoke truthfully. Not always nice, sweet things. Some of them needed to hear some pretty hard things. But they didn't respond in those hard things with some, he's an evil, bad man. Uh, this is someone who's somehow earned the right to say this to me in such a short time frame. Which is pretty amazing. But Jesus' character is essential to this idea of, of surrender. If at the end of the day, we don't really buy into uh, Jesus being... Um, in very essence, God, the character of God, all good qualities that humans could even remotely possess in one person, then we're going to be leading people to a lot of different directions and not Jesus himself. 
And you know, the, the idea of converting people, too many of us, we want to convert people's head or heart, but I think at the end of the day, what Jesus is really looking for is to convert people's will. To ultimately decide that I'm going to follow Jesus. It's just what I'm going to do. Whether I feel like it today or whether it even makes sense to me much today, I'm going to do it. And a lot of our outreach is not really directed at the will. It's often directed at the head or it's directed at the heart. And the only thing that I think truly converts people at that will level is Jesus' character. It's, it's the reason people are rightly asking, how do I reconcile Jesus in the New Testament with this mean God of the Old Testament? It's a good question. If you haven't kind of struggled through trying to answer some of that, you ought to start thinking about it. I assure you it's not near as complex as you may think. Certainly, uh, you know, trying to go back through some of those scriptures we did that last summer can be difficult. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, um, people are ultimately going to be converted because of Jesus' character. Seeing something in God that encompasses who we should be as people. I mean, that's just, it, it converts our will. It, it says, okay, you know what, some of this makes sense and some of this feels right, but this guy, I mean, you know, the way he lived, it's just right, okay? I'm going to follow him. I think it's the thing that ultimately led the apostles to really... Um, you know, to follow him. I mean, certainly at the beginning it was a lot of other stuff. Just like when we initially come to Jesus. There's a variety of reasons we do. And many of us, it's not because of his character. We'll just be really honest about that. We find freedom. We find belonging. We find friends. Uh, maybe we've had a miraculous something happen in our lives. And miracles are tricky because miracles manipulate the will often. And so... Not that miracles are bad in and of themselves, but when you see a miracle with your own eyes, it kind of manipulates your will, right? It's like seeing that magic guy that people used to like a lot. Yeah, magic guy. Guy that would like levitate. And what if I just did, like, right? Like this high up in the air. You guys would be manipulated, right? Your wills would be manipulated. You'd be like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Well, actually, probably a lot of you would be skeptical at first, but then if I could like somehow prove it to you, your will would be manipulated. You'd be like, what is happening here? I, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I really want to. I've kind of had dreams about it sometimes. I'm just like... <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so that's tricky. It's why when the religious folks come to Jesus and want a miracle, what does he say? You wicked generation. The only miracle you're going to get is tear down the temple and three days later it'll be back up. They're like, what? <laughs> Sounds like a terrible idea. It took us like so long to build this thing. Right? He'd give miracles to individual people. Small settings, sure. But when people asked for it, no. Thomas, doubting Thomas or doubting Philip. I can't even remember which one. Whatever, but well, some of you are like, doubting Thomas. Yeah, I know that phrase. No, I'm talking about that story. I think it's actually Philip, but he says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Jesus says, have I been with you this long? You still don't recognize me? At least believe in the miracles. He's saying at least start with the miracles. That should tell you that I'm someone significant. Many of us start off with that's what we got at the best, is we're curious in Jesus. Um, one of the really great books that uh, uh, I think I read on, on outreach, I've read so many over the years, I'm still so bad at it, so 
um, what was it called? I Once Was Lost. And uh, it's a really good book and, uh, you know, written by some kind of sociologist people down in Southern California that took like two or 3,000 conversions over the couple a year period. And just asked them, what, what did it take, really? And they came up with these thresholds, um, meaning that like certain steps that almost everybody takes. And the first one was they just had to trust a Christian. This kind of goes back to that service outreach thing. Just had to trust a Christian. They can just trust a Christian in their life. Not like the, you know, Hollywood version of a Christian, which no one trusts, but meet someone who seems to be faithful and then trust them. That was step one. Two is become interested in spiritual things. Because some people just aren't. And then one of the hardest thresholds was to get past was for people to get actually interested in Jesus. So they could trust a Christian, be interested in spiritual things, but what was really tough was being interested in Jesus. And I believe that one of the reasons is because that's where the Spirit starts to really work hardcore in people. Is to really trust Jesus. Because that, that, you're, you're taking all the options. Christian, okay, cool person, decent, not awful. Spiritual things, why not? Spiritual seems cool, it's a good word. People are into spiritual things. But then Jesus? Interested in, why do you have all people Jesus? It's like, dude, carpenter, weird guy. Curse some stuff. I feel like he's kind of mean sometimes. I get interested in him, you know? That's weird. It happens through his character. You really want people... I think it's what drew people to Jesus ultimately. It's his character. And that's why one of the really interesting things about our conversations about outreach is we're so focused on what we say and the content of what we say without really focusing on all is how we act towards people. Probably the majority of the testimony that we have when we spend time with people is literally who we are. What our character is. And has very little to do with the things that we've said. People just pick up. Are you a decent person? You know? I mean, do you even notice what's going on around you? Do you have care and concern? You know? Uh, and, and somehow we, we kind of miss that. But to convert the will, you're going to have to ultimately uh, you know, be able to, uh, to really reflect Jesus' character to people. So your two words this week are morality and ministry. Morality and ministry. And I really want you to take morality, again, from the, the, asp- uh, the, the point of view of people keeping, okay? What does it look like to be moral as a people keeper? Our, our society uses this term a lot in terms of right or wrong, deeds, whatever. But try to use this in the way that... Uh, that Jesus used it, I think, in terms of, you know, when he, when he talked about the greatest command being loving God and loving other people. He was talking about morality, right and wrong. And then ministry. Ministry is a word we all use around here. But I think when you start using it around people who don't really know what ministry are, they're like, what is that? Is that like something that collects money and then spends it unwisely? Um, you know, I tell people I have an auto ministry. Like, what, does that, what does that mean, man? Like, uh, so, or, you know, I actually probably people recognize that a little bit more specifically. That ministry is like something specific. When you tell them you're just involved in a ministry, they're like, oh, what do you do? You know, you guys do shoes, you do clothes, what do you do? Uh, we use that term a lot around here. But what does it mean to really minister to each other? What are we doing from week to week? What are we doing when we sit across from people, uh, having conversations, talking on the phone, looking out for people? What is that? What is ministry at the end of the day? Uh, so I want you to, to try to uh, define both of those words, okay? Morality and ministry. Not define, sorry. Come up with imagery. Uh, come up with, you know, a way of thinking about this that, that kind of helps explore that. So you've got two weeks. That's great. Um, the question that, that, that I sort of left with is a question I 
kind of struggle with, and maybe there's probably better questions, but you know, I'm only a person after all, so. And, and the question is, what is an aspect of God's character, according to the Old Testament, that doesn't sit well with you? An uh, uh, aspect of God's character, according to the Old Testament, that doesn't sit well with you. Some, some of us are like, I, how would I ask that to someone I was talking to? I don't even know the answer to it. I'm like still at asking that question and have plenty of things to list down. <laughs> but this is actually really important. And particularly it's important because it's a great starting place uh, to communicate uh, you know, how Jesus is a reflection of, of who God is and to sort of challenge some of our assumptions of, of the Old Testament. And of course we like to ignore it completely. Um, but uh, yeah, what's an aspect of God's character according to the Old Testament that doesn't sit well with you? Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.